Very good. Well, we have we still have some time yet. We'll take as much time as we need because we're, we're on schedule. If we get upstairs a few minutes late, it won't matter. We'll still have plenty of time for our prayers and for mass. And for the rest of, of the schedule today, the title of my conference for this morning was The Reality of Beatitude. Please, everyone still hears me fine at this level of volume? Very good. You might be wondering what exactly that means, this this title, what the reality of Beatitude, is it just a very highfalutin way of saying heaven is for real? Well, pretty much. Yes. But by, by saying the reality of Beatitude, I wish to, to discuss two things. First of all, the reality of it, the fact that yes, certainly it is real, but then what it is, and what is that reality? It's very important because our, our master, St. Thomas Aquinas, says, Omni agents agit propta finem. Every agent, everyone who acts, everyone who does anything, does it for a reason, does it for a purpose, does it for an end in mind. When we go on retreat, as elementary as it might seem, we need to consider again the end. We need to consider again the end toward which we are tending, because it is so easy to forget. And sadly, for so many of us, we do oftentimes, in preparing, stirring ourselves up for a good confession, trying to overcome faults, think about avoiding a particular end, that is, avoiding, avoiding hell, the fear of hell. Well, the fear of hell you know, is, is indeed very salutary. It's very important for our spiritual life, but it can't end there. The fear of hell is not enough. We have to consider our end. We have to consider the end toward which we tend, and we will talk about that, what it is, the fact that we have very strong reasons for, for believing in its existence, reality is very and the fruits of that consideration already right here and now in our spiritual life the fruits that that bears for us right here and now i might just ask if uh, one of the oblates or any free hand on deck could just maybe move this pulpit over to the side that way people aren't being Block. That's perfect. Oh, perfect. You can just slide it a little bit out of the way there. That's that's much better, I think. Yes. Very good. Good to see you. Okay. So St. Thomas defines beatitude. What is beatitude? Well, that in and of itself, beatitude, or could sometimes be translated as happiness. Well, that's a word that Aristotle knew when Aristotle. Aristotle wrote his ethics when he wrote about morality without the aid of divine revelation, without knowing anything about the gospel. He had an idea of this, that everyone desires to be happy. And St. Thomas, in his second part of Summa, begins by asking us about that. What is beatitude? And St. Thomas tells us beatitude is that perfect good which completely satisfies the desire of a rational being. That perfect good, which completely satisfies the desire of a rational being. Given a definition like that, it doesn't seem like it's quite necessary yet to know the gospel. That, that's a definition which, yes, very Aristotelian. Even if you don't have divine revelation yet, if you don't have the gospel yet, you could still accept such a definition. But we will go far beyond that, as St. Thomas does. He considers that in preparing for everything he's going to talk about Christ. 
what Christ has obtained for us. And this is how we arrive at his truly splendid argument for the existence of something beyond happiness in this life. So, at the first we might say, well, the existence of heaven, well, isn't that something that's been revealed to us? Isn't that something, it's something that's given to us by God, it's far beyond our nature, it's a free gift from God, it's supernatural. Therefore, heaven is not something we can simply prove. Unless we're given a special grace to see it, we can't simply prove it. And even then, even being given a special grace to see it is still, as we will see, that's still on the level of faith. Because to see heaven, what does that mean? Right? It's if you've if you've read Dante, if you've read you made it all the way, don't don't just read the Inferno, please. I know that everyone if you read Dante, it's like, oh, let's just read the Inferno, okay? Hell is full of French and Italians, and you know, there we are. Okay, we're done. No, keep going. Is Purgatorio, Purgatorio, which is the great saint school. So I call it saint school. It's summer school for those who did not undergo their purgatory here. This, this, this noble mountain of purgatory, right? sunny purgatory, where they suffer, yes, but they are already assured of their salvation, and so they're eager to undergo this purification. And then Paradiso, where Dante is very careful at the beginning to tell us that, no, okay, he's, he's still just a mortal. He's still... He's still on the level of faith like all of us. He, he's, hasn't, he didn't see God in the face when he went to heaven. No, he, he was granted the gift to go and see heaven, but not yet to behold God forever, because then that would have been it. He wouldn't have come back. So he was granted a great grace to go and see heaven, but still, as just a mortal man, not yet seeing it the way the saints see it once they're in heaven. So even that, though, as, as great a grace as that would be, would still be on the level of faith, and you could still, after that, turn away after seeing such a thing. So you might be tempted to conclude simply that, no, this is far beyond anything that, that man could ever have. If we to us by God, we would never, ever know that there's a heaven. Simply never know that. Because as far as we know, a created intelligence can never see God. Can never see God. The other extreme would be to say, well, no, absolutely, the, we, we can. In fact, it's something, it's something that's due to us, you know, to be able to see God in the face. Well, no, not, there's no reason to believe that. That would, be, that would be too extreme. But where's the Catholic position? The Catholic position is that, no, in the middle, yes, we can. We can do that, but only with God's help, only by grace, only by a supernatural vision. It's the only way we could ever see God in the face. But what's amazing about that is that and that's what the Catholic belief is, that unlike other religions which might say, well, no, such a thing is you would just cease to be a human being. If you were saw God, you would just be obliterated. You would just be sucked into God, this immortal black hole, and then and that would be it, because you couldn't you couldn't actually see God and then still continue to be who you are. Well, no, that's not what we believe, right? As as Christians, we don't believe that. It's not what's been told to us. We don't no. We we will, God willing. If we persevere in grace, one day we will all see God in the face, but we will continue to be who we are as individuals. We will see him as an individual. See him as an individual and continue to be exactly who we are. So this is what 
we're talking about, we're talking about the beatific vision. So the beatific vision. So it is a mystery of our faith. It's a mystery of our faith, like the Holy Trinity, like the Incarnation, the Redemption. However, St. Thomas says we could say a little bit more about that. Even though it's something that's revealed to us, and we wouldn't know it if God didn't reveal to us who we are, which already gives us a clue that heaven is in store for us. Even before someone would accept the gospel, could by reason already have this sense that, no, it is at least possible, heaven is at least possible, that human beings are created in such a way that God could allow them to do that. St. Thomas justifies it by saying it is the nature of any created intellect to know the essence of things. We always want to know what things are. Right? As soon as those two cassocks stood up here, you wanted to know right away. We were burning with desire to know what is an oblate. You had to know what the essence of oblatehood was. You just had to know it. And what does Thomas say? He says, when we can't know that, when we can't know what happens in our mind, what happens in our soul when we don't know exactly what something is, well, then we experience something called what? We experience something called called wonder, right? He says we experience wonder. When, there's things, when we look at things in the universe, the things that seem beyond us, we don't quite get them what they are. That doesn't lead us to just give up and just close our mind to it. No, we have wonder. We want to know things. We have a, a longing to investigate, to learn. We have wonderment. Thomas tells us the fact that we have that shows that there's always something more, that we're always tending toward that, that, that we want something more. And he, having read the pagan philosophers, knows that, well, look, they said the same thing. Plato in the symposium, oh, this long drinking party, well, they get to the point, they say, no, surely there must be a way that, that our intellect could get so high that it could be perfectly satisfied, knowing the good, that our intellect would finally be satisfied, finally beholding the ultimate good. So even Plato could get to that point to say, surely that must be a possibility. Well, the fact that pagans could say that before the gospel is a great clue to us that, okay, this is already a proof that... They, why would we have that in us? Why would we be able to imagine that even before the gospel, that, that we could get to that point? It's only because we are programmed that way for something that is possible. Something that is possible. St. Augustine said, beginning of the confessions, our heart is restless over till it rests in thee. The fact that, that we have this longing, we always need more, that nothing we know here, nothing we learn about ever completely satisfies shows that there must one day be something that will completely satisfy. That's not an absolute proof of heaven, but it's a, it's a powerful foundation for it. St. Thomas makes another powerful argument. If we just want to go further, and this is where now we're really at home here, and it's an important consideration for your He says, if you have no trouble... accepting the idea that the love of God can be in you. This is a, an article of faith by all means, but you have no trouble accepting that. You have. You know, by faith you accept that. Yes, I understand. We can be in, in the state of grace. We can have the life of God in us. I have experienced this, and I, I, know, I know it to be true. I know it to be true that, yes, it's a free gift of God, His grace, to have the love of God dwelling in our souls, but it is. I know this is possible. St. Thomas says, if you believe that, then you have to go one step further. You can't end there. If you believe that you can be in the state of grace, you must, he says, then also believe that you can be in the state of glory. Because grace would be meaningless. 
if it didn't if it weren't the seed of glory if it weren't the seed of glory grace would have no meaning at all so if you can already accept that you must be able to proceed to that conclusion in your mind that I, I do accept this on a daily basis I perfectly accept the idea that I can be in the state of grace I must also accept that I can be one day in the state of glory so if we accept doctrine of grace then the existence of heaven really can be proven so if you can just go that one extra step and make that first act of faith in grace you can believe in glory you can understand that that must be true because grace which St. Francis de Sales tells us grace is simply the love of God touching our souls for the first time touching our souls for the first time that's, that's what grace is grace and charity of their nature they are everlasting even a pagan writer of the 19th century who said, was able to say to someone, said, you know, to love is to say to someone, you shall never die. To love is to say to someone, you shall never die. Right? To, if you really love someone, on some level you look at that person, there's something eternal about you. There's something that, that doesn't ever go away. There's something that lasts forever. If you truly love someone, you, you look at that person and you say, there's something about you that's meant to be forever. It's the nature of loving. <clears throat> it is in this way that we begin to understand what our Lord says in, in Matthew 25, which is entirely good. Matthew 25 is one of the most important chapters for everything we're talking about this morning. Right? Matthew 25, where he sa- our Lord says, To him who has, more shall be given. To him who has not, even what he has shall be taken away. So if we have grace already, more will be given. If we continue down this path, more and more will be given. If we don't have that, even what we think we have will be taken away. Without grace, no. Then even what we think we have will not last. But if we have grace, the seed is there for something something eternal. Now those are just the very initial considerations of reason. Now let's consider what has been revealed to us in the scriptures. We know that we had to wait for the fullness of time. We had to wait for Christ to have this fully revealed. In the Old Testament, it was only very dimly revealed, especially at the beginning. At the beginning of the Old Testament, what's revealed to the Hebrews is little more than what the pagans mused about. You know how dark and horrible it is consider the underworld of the pagans. If you read Homer, I mean, in the end it almost says, what does it matter? What does it matter whether it's a place of torture or whether it's a place of doing nothing? Whether it's a place of just milling around forever, which is what everyone in the underworld seems to do. You almost think, well, what does it matter? Whether whether they're being tortured or not. Who could imagine just doing that forever and ever and ever, regardless of what sort of a life you that. Now, in Revelation, in the very first books of, of the Bible, it doesn't put it that way, but it doesn't say much. It doesn't say much. And we understand afterwards when Christ comes that why that is, because heavenly beatitude was not until Christ was to come. Therefore, the most you get to hear about with the patriarchs is he died and he was gathered to his fathers. And he died and he was gathered to his fathers, which is exactly what happened, we know now, because they went to the limbo of the just. They did not behold God in the face yet, he was gathered to his father, so they had to wait. They had to wait for, for Christ to come. But as 
as Revelation continues on and on, it does become more explicit. There are some times we have little bursts of Revelation. You know, if you consider the agony of, of poor Job and his sufferings, right? Then you have Job, who amazingly in chapter 19, just regardless of which version you read, in the Vulgate it's the most explicit, but regardless of which version you read of Job, it, he makes this amazing confession of faith in the resurrection. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the end I shall rise again. Clothed with my flesh, I shall see God, my eyes and not another's. This hope is laid up in my bosom. So, in a sense, one day I will behold, and it will be actual beholding. It's not, I won't cease to be who I am. I will be who I am. I'll have a body again, but I will see God. I will see God. This gets more and more explicit also in, in the prophets. Indeed, that's that's exactly how Isaiah ends his glorious prophecy. The final three chapters of the prophet Isaiah, this great long prophecy, he concludes by speaking then of the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth and God the judge. So understand that this is indeed coming. The prophet Daniel, the one who speaks most explicitly about the coming of Christ, who tells us exactly, even the exact date as to Christ's coming in time, with this amazing prophecy in chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, then tells us in chapter 12, he speaks of the resurrection of the dead. He says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charged the people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since a there was a nation till that time. But at that time, a people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Exactly wording that will be taken up by St. John in Revelation. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and a lasting Contempt, the exact words our Lord will quote in John chapter 5. In the office of martyrs, we hear from the Book of Wisdom. Book of Wisdom, the opening chapters are chapters 3 through 5, where we, where we hear at different times of the year of the sufferings of the just and how those who have persecuted them here in life will be amazed at the last judgment to see that they have been delivered and counted among the saints. And so explicit that it belongs even on our calendar as a feast day, even though they are Old Testament saints, we have the Holy Maccabees on August 1st. The Holy Maccabees on August 1st, who we hear about in chapter 7 of 2 Maccabees, where the seven sons and then their mother suffer martyrdom to being holding out their hands saying, I have received these from God and from God I hope to receive them again. So believing explicitly in this resurrection and, our, and they're exhorting each one of them saying, I implore you to look up to heaven. Look up to heaven. For the fullness of this revelation, of course, though we will have to wait till the coming of Christ. For it is Christ himself who tells us this. St. John, at the beginning of his gospel, says, No man has ever seen God. He said, God, the only begotten, so the only begotten God, God, the only Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has become our interpreter, the exact word in the Greek, he has become our interpreter. So he's the one who explains it to us now and tells the story. And what does he tell us? In John chapter 15, our Lord tells us this is eternal life, to know thee, the only true God and Jesus, whom thou hast sent. Most explicitly of all, St. John, in his first epistle, will tell us this in 1 John chapter 3, he will explain exactly what it is, exactly what it is to see God. He'll tell us, and this is so important because St. Thomas will found all of his reasoning on this, on this text, where he says, 
we shall then be like him. So we shall be like God. St. John says in chapter 3, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. We won't cease to be. We'll continue to be who we are, but we shall become like him because we shall see him as he is. And as I told you, very important to consider Matthew 25. So after speaking of the, the end, after speaking of what is to come upon the world in Matthew 24, what is to come upon the world at that time with the destruction of Jerusalem and how that prefigures the end of the world, it is in Matthew 25 that we have two things that Matthew places together, and oftentimes we don't consider them together, but it's a very worthwhile meditation. Consider that right before we have the judgment of the nations, passage which we all know well where our Lord sits on his right and on his left and he says to them I come blessed of my father possess the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world and he speaks of all the works of mercy it's that those who have done the works of mercy shall possess the kingdom and those who did not show up depart into everlasting fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels but right before that passage right before that passage we have the parable of the talents parable of the talents, which perhaps also know well, I hope you do. We hear it so often throughout the year for the office of confessors. When we have a mass of the holy confessor, we have this parable of the talents. And what has happened? Everyone's given things here. God gives graces to some. He gives different blessings to, to different people. And what do you do with them? Talents, right? So if you take them and you make something out of them, you say, look, you gave me five talents. Here I return to you ten. This is what I did with them. And what is our well done, good, and faithful servant? You have been faithful in little things. Now I will set you over great things. Enter, enter, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. This is going to be very important. What does it mean to enter into the joy of thy Lord? <clears throat> we'll consider this now when we, in just a few moments, when we consider the nature of this of this beatitude. Let's just consider finally a, a few more passages. There are so many passages we could consider. In 1 Corinthians, we have St. Paul speak to us of the incorruptible crown. So we hear about on Septuagesima Sunday, right? That we, we are in a race, right? All run, but not only one receives the prize. Run so that you may win. And those who do that here on earth, they labor for a corruptible crown. But we labor for an incorruptible crown. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous chapter that speaks about faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity, he says that now we see in a glass darkly. We see in a glass darkly now. What is seeing in a glass? You have to understand what it means 2,000 years ago. What did it mean to see in a glass darkly? There was no such thing as a mirror that gave you a nice, clear image of yourself. The mirrors were always just ugh, very, very obscure. You could barely see yourself at all in a mirror. And he said, we see in a glass darkly now. So that's all we see now. But, it, but then he said, we shall see face to face. Then we shall see face to face. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he speaks about the nature. That's where we learn about all the properties that the resurrected body shall have, which we'll consider in, in a few moments. St. <clears throat> Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, speaks about the unfading crown of glory toward which we tend And 2 Corinthians, 
So that, that's another one to dwell on for a while, I think. If you were to take a time for some meditation, it would be very important to, you could consider 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 6. The idea here is that beholding, beholding the glory of the Lord is something that is transformative. Something that's transformative. That is what he wishes to tell us here. That when we behold the glory of the Lord, it causes a certain transformation in us. It says, we all, starting in 318, 2 Corinthians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And he has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the face of Christ. So God, so Christ has become our interpreter. Christ, as we're told here in this of St. Paul, Christ is the icon, that's the word he uses there. He's the visible image of us. Makes us think about the office of, of Christmas, right? The preface of the nativity, that as we as we contemplate visible things, let us be wrapped up, let us be ravished up into the knowledge of invisible things. And most famously here we have in first phrase of St. Paul, the weight of glory, the weight of glory. It's a very interesting phrase, it's always very striking when you hear this in the inspired text. So we do not lose heart, he says. Though, the, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed every day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling, so that by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety. Not that we would be, we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This, this word guarantee here, which we find so, so often, Dr. Dr. Ruth Sutherland can confirm for me this, this word that we translate as guarantee or pledge sometimes is not, is not a glory. He's not asking, well, let me see your reputation. That doesn't mean anything. Then. What, what does it even mean? It, it's how poor that word is. Wait, no, when he says, show me your glory, he says, I want to see your full weight. I want to see, I want to see you. I want to see the whole you. Right? And then we, we get at least a sense of it with our poor language and its limitations of what, what he means when he says the weight of glory. When he says that now... <clears throat> When he says, I'll just read that, that passage one more time. So we do not lose heart. Our outer man is wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed every day for this slight momentary affliction. Everything we suffer now, the slight momentary affliction, is, bearing, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. All this will be weighed on the last judgment, right? The last judgment, these things will be weighed. And the good we have done is preparing for us a weight of glory, this participation in the weight this eternal beatitude for which we are preparing, which should be on our thoughts every day. If we go on retreat, it's to recall this to mind so that we can leave retreat refreshed 
and having this as a daily consideration, considering every day of our lives the eternal beatitude that awaits us. Because as we shall see, nothing bears more fruit in our spiritual life than this continual consideration. I spoke about wonder earlier, and I was so happy when we were all on retreat. We all made a wonderful retreat this year, a priest retreat, and it was preached to us by the, uh, by the abbot, the, the abbot, uh, Father Abbot of Clear Creek, who preached us all in St. Louis, and, and I was so happy when, when he started to speak about, about this. He spoke at the beginning, too, about what I said about us being capable, right? capable of receiving God, capable of grace, therefore capable of glory. And he spoke about this wonder was very impressive what he said because he he said we, we pass over this a lot of times but in, in the preface of the mass there's this phrase right about the angels right tremunt potestates so speaking about that choir of angels the powers right it says they they tremble so they tremble he says what does that mean they tremble all the angels now they behold god in the face why are they trembling what, what, what is there to tremble about he said are you saying that there's fear in heaven he said yes there is there's fear in heaven how could there be fear in heaven? So because we, we can't even imagine, how could there possibly be fear? For us, what is fear tied to here on earth? Fear is tied to our instinct of self-preservation. Right? That's basically what fear is about most of the time. So we're thinking about fear, it's about, uh, you know, you're going to get hurt, you're going to die, something's going to happen to you, there's danger. That's, that's what fear is about. And even the fear of the Lord, when we say, well, okay, I understand that. The fear of the Lord, yeah, God has the power to send us to hell, so I'm afraid of him. Well, Stranger that we, we hear about this, that the, even the angels, the choirs of angels who, who can never offend God again, who know that they are going to be in eternal glory forever and ever and ever, even they have fear, they tremble. How, how, how can there be fear in heaven? Well, it's because he explains, he said that fear, and St. Thomas explains, is actually wonder, what I was saying about earlier, wonder is part of fear. So part of fear is in our soul with regard to, to wonder. Wonder about that. It's very closely tied in our soul to fear. It's right next to our neighbor to fear. Right? So, so he says, no, they're tied together. In fact, it's part of fear. So that's the sort of fear we'll have, even in heaven. And so how can you say, now we begin to understand just how how wrong people are, people who don't have faith, and just say, well, I'm sorry, but you, you, you can't possibly be looking forward to going to that. I mean, it's going to get boring after a while, isn't it? Just the harps and the the same music all the time. You're going to get extremely bored. So no, we are not going to get bored. Because there's going to be fear in heaven. Just say, anytime you do it, anytime you play a great sport, you know, there's always a little bit of fear there, right? It doesn't matter how good you are at the sport. If you're a great skier, you're going really difficult. There's always going to be some element of fear there. Yeah, if it's way beyond your ability, yeah, then the self-preservation kicks in and then you're scared out of your mind. But there's always a little bit of fear there. When you're doing, even if you're very well trained in whatever skill you're doing, whatever sport, anything, there's a little bit of fear there, and that's what makes it exciting, right? So it's exciting, and you don't get bored, because there's a little bit of fear going on there. You do, you, you do things in life, you sign up for things, you go a little bit out of your comfort zone, as we say, and we're very happy we did that afterwards. We're happy we had a new experience, and it did take us a little, a little uncomfortable. Well, somehow heaven is going to be like that. It is going to be like that, so we're not, we're not going to get bored, right? not going to get bored, even though the fact that that bored is, is completely wrong, because that, that ties, that you're stuck in this idea that it's just going to be that it's just going to be a clock going off for an ever and ever and ever, and that's not what it's going to be. In fact, St. Thomas tells us that this beholding God in the face is going to be one eternal act. It's not going to be, okay, we can, okay, let's get up another day, let's look at God again. Like, no, it's, it's one, one eternal act, one eternal act. So we, 
time ticking by and, and any possibility of getting bored. And so, in fact, we can say that even in heaven, as I said, we're, we're not going to stop being who we are, which means, what are we? We're limited. We can't sin anymore, but we're still who we are. We still have our limitations. We're still limited creatures. And so even in heaven, our knowledge of God, even though we'll behold him in the face, our knowledge of God will be, we might say, joyously incomplete. Joyously incomplete. We'll still have this sense of wonder. I want to know more. I want to know more. And that's what heaven's going to be because God's infinite. So you get to always, every day, wanting to know more, wanting to know more, still incomplete, and, and knowing that's the only thing that can ever satisfy you, and it will satisfy you, but eternally. It's not going to be poop, and then it's over, and now, now it's time to get bored. No, so... So then we begin to understand what about what does it mean is to enter into the joy of thy Lord. What is the joy of thy Lord? It means he's saying, enter into the joy of thy Lord. He says, take part in my joy. Take part in my own beatitude. Take part in my own beatitude. <clears throat> so St. Augustine says in the city of God, God is the good of our desires. He is the one whom we shall see without end, whom we shall love without weariness, whom we shall glorify forever without fatigue. So of all, of all the saints, as St. Augustine defines this beatitude probably the best there, he says, God is the good of our desires. He's the one whom we shall see without end, whom we shall love without weariness, whom we shall glorify forever without fatigue. Now, another important point of our school of St. Thomas, what does it mean? What is heaven? St. Thomas gives a very clear answer on this. No, no, if you're in the school of St. Thomas, if you're a Thomas, you have to hold this. He says that heavenly beatitude for us is going to be in the intellect. It's going to be in the intellect. Way beyond anything that Plato could have imagined, but, but it's still going to be, that's true though, it's going to be in the intellect. Why? Because I'm not making that up. I'm, not music, I'm just figuring it out for myself. He says, no, let's go back to what we read in Revelation. Right. So St. John says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. So we shall behold God. He says, well, that's an intellectual thing. We're beholding God. Yes, one day we will have our bodies back and we'll see him with our eyes. But even before that, we shall behold him by intuition with, with our intellect. And so St. John says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So that is what, to become like God, we have to behold him. And that's what we're going to do. So here below, perhaps things are in our inverted. Here below we think more about loving God because, well, we can't see him yet. So here below we think about loving God first, right? We know him only in a glass darkly here. But in heaven it will be it will be the reverse. Here we know by faith only. We know by faith and that's the foundation of our hope and then we love God but we don't get to see him yet. Well, in heaven it will be the other way. Not, in heaven we'll see him and because we see him then whatever charity we had here below will blossom. Right? And then we'll have a new, far greater charity founded, founded on, on the vision of God. Perhaps the, the most beautiful commentary ever made on that phrase, enter into the joy of thy Lord, again, St. Augustine in the Confessions. I don't know, who's, who's read the Confessions? Oh, great. You have a great life ahead of you. Wonderful books to read. All of the Divine Comedy, not just Inferno. And... And, and the Confessions, right? the Confessions of St. Augustine. So you may know that a passage which Dante knew very well, too, is in, in, in Book 9, where he has this mystical vision uh, with his mother, right? 
far St. Monica goes to her eternal reward, St. Augustine, her, her son, and they have this, and also you have this amazing vision uh, of the divine. And so St. Augustine, speaking of this, says, all within us cries out, we did not make ourselves, the eternal one made us. If, after this word, all things were silent, and he himself alone would speak to us, no longer through them but by himself, if then our soul, lifting itself on the wings of thought up to eternal wisdom, could retain unbroken this sublime contemplation, if all other thoughts of the spirit had ceased, and this alone had absorbed the soul and filled it with joy, the most intimate and the most divine, if eternal life resembled this ravishment in God which we experience for a moment, would this not be the consummation of that word, enter into the joy of thy Lord? Entering into the joy of the Lord, then, this beatific vision is different from vision that we have here below. It is, as I said, an intuitive vision. It's a looking. It's a looking at God. Think about the difference between knowing by faith the resurrection versus the apostles seeing our Lord ascend into heaven. We don't. The apostles weren't there to see our Lord. Saw him afterwards. Saw him afterwards, but they didn't. They weren't there watching our Lord rise from the dead. But they did watch our Lord ascend into heaven. It gives you a little bit of an idea of the difference, right? Of what it is that one day we will look at God. So they got to look at Christ ascending into heaven. So it wouldn't be quite the same as saying there we have they, they had faith in His ascension. Well, yeah, but they they got to see that actually. So that, that was a strong foundation for their faith in His divinity. But they got to see Him do that, just like they got to to see Him work numerous miracles. So they saw him going into heaven. So it's, that's what we mean by an intuitive vision. We simply will see God and no longer know him by faith. But faith and hope will give way now to this vision, which will be then the foundation of our love. So that this intuitive vision, which we shall one day have, is distinguished then from the very obscure knowledge we have of God here below. Here below we can know God by reason, and by faith, we can reason that his existence, then after that, by faith in his resurrection, which is a reasonable faith, we can then begin to have a knowledge of him founded on that faith, which then is also the foundation of our hope. It is, as St. Paul says, faith is the assurance, it is the substance of things hoped for. So again, St. John told us, no man has ever seen God. It is God the only begotten. It's the only son God. God the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father who has become our interpreter. He's become our interpreter. If you, uh, if you know this, this passage of St. John, then you truly open your eyes now when you remember what, what happened to Moses. Right? When Moses said, he said to God, okay, I, I want to see you. <laughs> he, said, show me. he says, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory in chapter 33 of Exodus. And, and the Lord responds to him, no man shall see my face and live. So, right? No, no man can see God. So he says, what, is his, what does he say to Moses? I'm going to place you in the rock. <laughs> I'm going to place you in the rock, and then I'm going to walk by, and you can see my back, but you can't, you won't get to see my face. You won't get to see my face. So he places Moses in the rock, right? What does St. Paul tell us? The rock is Christ, right? The rock is Christ. So the amazing prefiguration of what is going to happen to us. We don't get to see God here below. We get to see him through the rock. We get to be placed in the rock as Christ. 
Christ becomes our interpreter here below because he's the very image, he's the icon, he's the visible that we get to look at here below so that we can be led one day to the invisible. In another beautiful passage of St. John, the first epistle again of St. John, where he says, no man has ever seen God. This is the same phrase again as he did in his gospel. No man has ever seen God. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So amazing thing that if we follow Christ's commandments, now that Christ has ascended to heaven, if we follow his commandments, if we love one another as he loved us, so then God abides in us. So then we get grace. God abides in us, and so that's how we begin. That's the seed of one day being able to see God. It's amazing how he ties that together, where he says, of course, well, yes, no man has ever seen God, but Christ, the only begotten God, he has become our interpreter. He says, no, God, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, so if we do what Christ did, if we act like Christ, then we begin. That's, then the process begins, whereby we will one day see God, because God will begin to live in us already here below and plant the seed of our mortality. So we see that the three theological virtues here below, faith, which is the foundation of our hope, and then by hope then, by that hope we begin to have charity, we begin to love, that leads only here below to an ever-increasing desire for that vision, an ever-increasing desire to be dissolved and to be with Christ, an ever-increasing desire to have that beatific vision. Whereas in heaven, then, it will be the reverse, because then we will finally see God in the face, and then, in turn, because of that, we shall love God. We shall love God whom we shall now enjoy. We shall now enjoy him, because we've entered into the joy of the Lord. So, as I said, no vision here below, not even the visions of the saints, not even ecstasies. I don't think those things are not yet the beatific vision. They're still on the order of faith. Someone can have an ecstasy here below and still fall away. It's a great grace, perhaps, granted to a person to have a vision of God here below, but it's not yet the beatific vision. Nor is this vision, as I said, it is joyously incomplete. It cannot be that we shall completely know God by this vision. God himself knows, knows, he alone can know himself fully. And in fact, what is that? God knowing himself fully? Well, that's the Trinity. God knows himself, and that's how he has a word, which is the Son. It's the closest we can get to understanding what the Trinity is. God knows himself from all eternity, and that's his word. And by the knowledge he has of himself, he loves himself. That's three. That's three. That makes the three persons of the Trinity. But God alone can know himself fully. So the mystery of the Trinity, we can only take part in that. If we knew God fully, that that would be actually to be God, not to be like him, but simply to be him. We shall never have a comprehensive knowledge of it. It will, be, it will be intuitive, it will be an immediate knowledge of God, but not comprehensive. The only image we can have of that, we can see how limited it is here below, how different people have different levels of appreciation of things. Imagine how different people go to the symphony, right? People have different appreciation. A five-year-old who goes to the symphony, and I, liked, I like that thing at the beginning where they're plucking the strings, whatever, like, it's interesting, whatever, and then afterwards long and boring, whatever, where someone who has a trained ear would, would absolutely enjoy the whole evening. So different levels of, and then we'll see that also ties into different levels of glory, the different levels of participation in God's glory, that the different glory of the saints.
Each saint then has a different level of ability to take in this light of glory. It is the supernatural light that elevates our created intelligence so that it may see God and have a holy joy in him. So an elevated, so a supernatural light that elevates our created intelligence so that it may see God and have a holy joy in him. So this has already begun here below with sanctifying grace. That is the very root of it, the root of what's to come with this light of glory, this supernatural light which will allow us to, to see God. Let us consider now, you grant me a little more patience, right, your time. So the object of this beatific vision, the object of this beatific vision. Well, the first and a very essential object of the beatific vision is God himself. It's God himself. Whereas the secondary object is creatures, creatures known in God. The first and essential object is God himself. The secondary one, creatures known in God. We've already been told this by, by St. John, that that's how we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So that is already eternal life, is to know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So this is the very primary vision. That already is perfect beatitude. However, God grants also, and this is not yet what we're going to talk about later, about accidental beatitude. That's something coming in just a moment. But... Beholding God in the face is the primary object of the beatific vision. However, God is a creating God. He's created a whole universe. There will be a secondary object of the beatific vision, which is all creatures in God. So first of all, what he just said, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, we shall consider true God and true man. We shall consider him from all eternity. And that will be the secondary object of the beatific vision. Immediately after that, the Holy Mother of God, the creature who participates most closely in the incarnation and the work of our redemption, so the Blessed Virgin Mary, that will also be the object in God of the beatific vision. Finally then, in God's friends here on earth, we will see them now in God. That will also be the object of our beatific vision, what we are beholding, beholding all the saints and all those who share in the beatific vision, all those for whom we had a special affection here on earth, we shall now see them entirely in God, so including those to whom we were married here on here below, those whom we knew by marriage, we shall see them now, but we shall see them in God. Should we see them in God? That that's still just the actual beatific vision. That's everything we're beholding. After that, though, we know by faith that there is something called accidental beatitude. And that's a philosophical word, it's a scholastic word, accidental beatitude. It's not, oh, I tripped, whoops, I'm happy. No, it's very, so accidental beatitude, right? So it's beyond the essential thing, we now have the accidental beatitude. What comes after this, even though that would seem that, well, isn't that enough? We hold, hold God in the face forever and ever. Yes, but God created us the way we are, with a body and a soul. And so our good God wants us to have something even Beyond that, we'll see in a minute why that is possible, and it's not superfluous. Right? So joy now in created good, joy in God's creation, 
everything that is to last forever, we'll have a joy in that. So we'll have bodies. We'll have our bodies. And so we will still have the society of friends. We'll see our friends again. Those who are in heaven right now, before the end of the world, they have an accidental joy in beholding us. Whenever we do a good deed, whenever someone converts, they see that, and that's a joy for them to behold those things. What's going on here on earth, when good triumphs, it's a joy for those who are in heaven right now to behold those things. We rejoice in the special rewards that are given to certain people for their good deeds. We see the special merits and rewards of certain saints. And then finally, the qualities of our resurrected body. So we are taught by our holy faith that all will arise, each with his own body, which he had upon earth, to receive what each has merited according as his works were good or bad. This body, which we shall have in heaven, as we are told, as we are told by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we say, so it will be an impassable body, incapable of any sort of suffering, it will have a perfect subtility, as it will be able to do, do all things, pass through things, make use of the creation in whatever way it wishes, be perfectly agile body, and perfectly beautiful. Perfectly beautiful. And we will have joy in the glorified bodies of others. We'll have joy in the humanity of Christ, and all the saints, the beauties of the heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, beauty in the liturgy of the city of God. All these things God will grant to us, and it's hard to imagine, again, you think about that, and you say, but if we're beholding God for and ever and ever, how could we possibly be bothered? Why would we bother to even think about those things or have any joy in those created things? Well, again, it, I, I often paint through this illustration. I say if you want to consider the, the torments of hell, you say, well, the loss of God is so great, is so great a torment that the other things hardly matter. You think about, well, oh, an eternity of being burned in hell. You say, you know, but you know what? An eternity of, of anything without God is hell. Doesn't matter with me. You know, see, see, even if you weren't being burned, I mean, what is it? Man? So, I mean, an eternity in Disney World. I mean, I mean, I mean, if you were sent to Disney World all by yourself, you say you're going to be there all by yourself and go on all the rides and do whatever you want. Well, okay, yeah, for how long? A week. Okay, well, I'll make the most of it. Sure, whatever. No, a month. Oh, a year. A year by myself. Disney World. Um, okay, I mean, no, nobody to joke around with. No friends. A year. It's going to get a little. I don't know. Hundred years. What? A thousand. Wait, a billion, a billion years, of, no, I can't, you can't imagine, it's absolute torture, what does it matter, whether it's Disney World or, or on a red hot oven, I mean, what, it's because, and that's an image of what it means like, to be without God, well, similarly here, but it, when we do have those things, you know, things that we enjoy here in life, when we have people to share them with, we have, with people we love, and we do them together, well, then, these things, it's not, well, they don't matter at all. No, they do matter. They're fun. They really are fun, but they're fun with the other things we have. But the greater thing we have, they're fun. We have fun people we love to enjoy them with, so they are truly fun. You know, it's like drinking all by yourself. You know, drinking all by yourself, okay, well, I mean, you know, as I always say to you, bring, bring your joy to the drinking table. Don't hope to find it there, right? So, I mean, but if you, if you bring your joy to the drinking table, so I have someone I want to enjoy a drink with, well, then the drinking is enjoyable. Not all by itself, but because of that. Because you have someone to enjoy, right? So we can we begin to understand then a little bit how even these other things, these accidental joys of heaven, truly are a part of the joy that God has prepared for us. All right, now conclusion. <laughs> so 
the fruits then, the fruits then of this knowledge, fruits then of this knowledge, right? One, one is one which our, our dear provincial touched on very much uh, last night in his sermon on, on gratitude, right? Gratitude as the foundation of hope and confidence here below. Gratitude is the foundation of hope and confidence here below. That's why it's very important to those who are scrupulous and think that that is important for them to make frequent prayers of thanksgiving. Well, it's a foundation of confidence. Um, and we see then that fear of hell is simply not enough, right? It's not enough for our spiritual life, right? To have, to have this knowledge of heaven, it allows us to be already thankful here below for what God has prepared for us. Already we should be giving God thanks for what he has prepared for us, the joy to come. And this has a powerful motive for us because it leads then what? It leads then to the control of the passions, right? To understand this now that God has prepared something so much better for us than what's here below. It leads to the control of the passions in a far more powerful way than just being afraid of eternal punishment. It's staying away from worldly pleasures because, oh yeah, well, they're fun now, but it's going to lead to a big hangover later. Right? No, it's, it's, that's not enough of a motive to lead a truly Christian life. You have to consider that everything that awaits us, that, yes, the, the pleasures of this world right now, the things that excite our passions here below, are so fleeting, of such little value, that they can be a, perhaps of some value, yeah, when done for reasons of charity and true friendship with others, but otherwise uh, just so fleeting and, and nothing compared to the joys that await us. This is a more powerful motive than anything else for us to, to control our passions and, and, and set aside our sensuality. Right? It leads, of course, now to great consolation at the death of others, death of all those who leave this world in the sign of Christ, or the sign of Mark, the sign of Christ, that they now sleep the sleep of peace. Right? So it's a great consolation, the death of us. And then most of all, of course, as we consider that example of the Holy Maccabees, is that it leads, of course, to courage. Right? Courage and suffering. Courage and suffering. It is impossible indeed, to have courage and suffering here below without a frequent consideration of the joys of heaven. So how, why else did the Holy Mother of the Maccabees say that to them as they were suffering martyrdom? I implore you to look up to heaven. Lord, you look up to heaven, especially to the youngest one. The youngest brother had to die last. Oh, the youngest brother had to die last. All the other ones had gone. He was all by himself, right? And then, whew, and there he is. So the only one had to die last. And she said, I implore you to look up to heaven. Right? Look at what's coming. And the sufferings of this life then are just not even worth considering. Said, as St. Paul says, the sufferings of this time, not, worth, not worthy to be compared with the joy, the glory to be revealed in us. I close then just with short passage of the famous sermon of St. Bede for All Saints Day, where he largely uh, takes up again the words of St. Cyprian many centuries before him. So the early church father, St. Cyprian, where concluding, concluding this very ancient sermon for All Saints Day in the 8th century, so the Venerable Bede, speaking to his English congregation, concludes, What, O beloved brethren, will be the glory of the righteous? What that great gladness of the Every face shall shine as the sun. When the Lord shall begin to count over in distinct orders his people, and to receive them into the kingdom of his Father, and to render to each the rewards promised to their merits and to their works, things heavenly for things, things, heavenly for things earthly, things eternal for things temporal, a great reward for a little labor, to introduce the saints to the vision of his Father's glory, to make them sit down in heavenly places, so that God may be all in all. And to bestow on them that love, and to bestow on them that love him, that eternity which he has promised to them, that immortality for which he has redeemed them by the quickening of his own blood, 
lastly to restore them to paradise and to open the kingdom of heaven by the faith and truth of his promise. Let us consider that paradise is our country as well as theirs. And so we shall begin to reckon the patriarchs as our fathers. Why do we not then hasten and run that we may behold our country and greet our parents? A great multitude of dear ones is there expecting us, a vast and mighty crowd of parents, brothers, children, secure now of their own safety, anxious yet for our salvation. They long that we may come to their right hand and embrace them, to that joy which will be common to us and to them, to that pleasure expected by our fellow servants as well as ourselves, to that full and perpetual felicity. If it be a pleasure to go to them, let us eagerly and covetously hasten on our way, that we may soon be with them and soon be with Christ. We may have him as our guide in this journey, who is the author of our salvation, the Prince of Life, the Giver of Gladness, who liveth and reigneth with God the Father Almighty, with the Holy Ghost. Amen.